Father, I pray that with the eyes of our hearts that thought of your son on the cross and your gracious provision would just be front and center as we enter into this passage this morning. I pray that you would open our hearts to what you want to do by your spirit through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, how many of you have ever hiked the Brownlow Trail in Prescott? <laughs> My son and nephew back there raising their hands because we did that yesterday uh, along with some of the in-laws who are in town. We hiked the Brownlow Trail. Evan wanted to show it to us because their cross-country team practices there three times a week. There's a nice 5K loop. Uh, but as we were out there, we saw a large group of bikers, uh, not motorcycles like, like, like your group, but bike, bike, pedal bikes. And they were having some kind of convention or event or something because they were, I'd say, 100, 100 150, maybe just ballparking it. And they're out there on that brown low trail that we're on. And, and we learned a couple things along the way. One, stay to the right so they can get through and you don't get run over. But two, as we were walking along the trail, uh, we noticed that there are places where the trail split off and they were to go one way not another way and where it split off like that to keep them on the right path there were signs that said wrong way so that the bikers would know which way to go why do I bring that up uh, in the course of looking at Mark chapter 15 I saw some wrong ways ways that I want to encourage us not to go. In fact, I saw four of them, and I'm going to call them four bewares. Beware of going this way or that way. Four of those, and then we're going to have one behold, one behold, and then finally one be grateful. One be grateful. But I want to start with the four bewares. The first beware, I want to look at Mark chapter 15. Verse 1, as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Now, if you were with us last week, you know they, the night before, had arrested Jesus in the garden and they had sort of a kangaroo court trial overnight to determine what charge they could cook up against him to, to accomplish their goal of, of having him executed. Do you remember what the charge was among the Jewish leaders? Blasphemy. Blasphemy. Yes. Yes. But these men were wise. They knew that blasphemy in, in the Jewish faith would mean little to a Roman governor like Pilate. So they had to frame this in a way that would catch his ear. They run to him early in the morning when Roman governors would often hold their trials. Mark doesn't tell us specifically here what charges they brought, but thankfully Luke does. We're going to be bouncing between all four Gospels. Thankful we have four. Help us round out the picture. Mark is sometimes very brief. But Luke tells us what those charges were. Luke 23, 2, they began to accuse him, saying, One, we found this man misleading our nation. Some translations say perverting our nation. Uh, number two, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Was that true? 
No, you can probably remember Jesus teaching about that very thing in the temple area, and that's not what he said. Check it out. Verse number three, third charge, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, was that one true? Absolutely. And that's the one that catches the Roman governor Pilate's ear. Rivals to Caesar, Tiberius Caesar at this time, were not taken lightly in the least by the Roman government. Now, Pilate's a man of the world. He's been around the block a few times. He perceives that there's more going on with these Jewish leaders. We have to jump ahead just a bit to see that. Mark 15, verse 10 says it wasn't just about these charges. It says he perceived that it was out of envy, out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. They were envious of the spiritual influence Jesus had gained among their people. And it galled them to no end. So as we head into the first beware, I call these chief priests the jealous Jewish leaders. And here's the beware. Beware the power of envy in our lives to blind us to God's good provision right in front of our noses. They had Jesus Christ, God's very provision, the Lamb of God, come from heaven in their midst. Yet their envy blinded them to God's good provision. What, what if we prayed like this? Lord, open our eyes that we might be thankful for your good provision in our lives, including the unspeakable gift of your son. Please protect us from the blindness and ungratefulness of, of envy. That's the first beware. Beware of envy. And now we're going to move into a passage that mentions Pilate and Jesus. We're going to come back around to both of them a little bit more in depth later on. Verse 2, Pilate asked him, and it is Pilate, by the way. If any of you do exercise classes, this is not the singular of your exercise class. I, I don't think this is Pilate. This is Pilate, as far as I understand. He's the Roman governor from 26 to 36. Fifth one over this area of the Roman Empire. He's responsible for keeping the peace on behalf of the empire. Okay, are you the king of the Jews, he asked Jesus, and he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. They're just lobbing charge after charge after charge. But verse 5 says, Jesus made no further answer. Fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy of the Lamb. Pilate was amazed. He's not used to this. People getting charges lobbed against him, life on the line, and just standing there silently. It probably unnerved Pilate a bit. We'll talk about that more lately. But first, I want to talk about the second beware. And this one involves a man I'm going to call harebrained Herod. <laughs> harebrained Herod. And you'll see why I call him that in a moment. Pilate, in the midst of the trial, as we look at the Gospels, realized that Jesus came from Galilee, and that was under Herod's realm. So Pilate, likely in an attempt to get it off of his plate, 
and passed it somewhere else, says, I'm going to send Jesus to Herod. Now, what do we know about this Herod? Well, we know a couple of things. Uh, he had an illicit love relationship with his brother's wife. Remember John the Baptist confronted him about that? And he was so galled by that that he had John the Baptist executed. Uh, so we know he's, he's living a life of pleasure, not necessarily a, a moral life. Uh, we also know that entertainment was a priority for him. You, you remember that the daughter of his wife once danced for him and the crowd that had gathered and likely a very lustful dance, and he enjoyed that dance very much. So I, I see what we know of Herod, and it's just a glimpse. I, I see kind of a playboy who loves pleasure, and, and entertainment is an idol in his life. And we see that mindset even when Jesus comes. Luke tells us about it. Mark does not. Luke 23, 8 tells us this. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. Why? Was he hoping to hear the truth of who Jesus was and have it change his life? Nope. Nope. I believe he was just simply looking for more entertainment. What's it say here? He had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. He wanted Jesus to do a magic trick. Perform. Show me what you can do. How does Jesus respond to that kind of a mindset? Did he oblige Herod? <clears throat> Let's look at verse 9. It says, he questioned Jesus at some length, but he made no answer. Jesus made no answer because Herod was making no real inquiries. He simply wanted to be entertained. Verse 10, the chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. They had found a common enemy in Jesus to bond over. As we look at harebrained Herod, what's the beware in our own lives? I thought about it like this. We need to beware the idol of entertainment in our worship of God. Beware the idol of entertainment and worship of God. Entertainment has its place in our lives. We all need to blow off steam sometimes, okay? I'm not speaking against entertainment in general. I'm speaking of making an idol in our worship of God. Listen to this. If you're only looking to Jesus for entertainment, like a sign here, maybe a Sunday morning buzz here. You probably shouldn't expect to get very much from Jesus in your life. I believe it's only as we surrender to him as our Savior and Lord that he brings that salvation, transformation, and direction that we need. Let me ask a question here. Is it wrong to enjoy Jesus? No. Is it wrong to enjoy Sunday morning? No. 
The problem here is when enjoyment becomes our priority. When we think our enjoyment of it is the main thing. Because I believe real worship of God is not always enjoyable. Just ask John the Apostle about the moment he met the risen Lord at the beginning of Revelation. You remember what happened there? He fell on his face in awe of the glory. I don't know about you, but I think if I were to ask John, was that an enjoyable moment? I don't know if enjoyable is the word that, that he would use. Sometimes worship is unsettling. Drives us to our knees in humility before the almighty God of the universe. Sometimes it's convicting and, and leads us to repent of sin that, that we're holding on to. Sometimes it's challenging and God calls us to a step of faith that looks scary. Okay? So what if we prayed like this? What if this was our heart cry? Lord, help us to see that worship is first and foremost about your glory. Any enjoyment we receive is a blessing and a byproduct, but we're sorry we have made that the main thing. So whether you choose to bring us a smile this morning or to tears of repentance in our walk with you, may all of our worship be centered on you and your glory. Let's move on to Barabbas. He's a third one we'll come back to more in detail later. Verse 6, at, at the feast, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked, you know, and keeping peace in a region, this was one way they could do it. Hey, who would you like to have set free? Maybe keep the people appeased. 7 says, among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. This is possibly one of the zealots fighting against Rome on behalf of Israel and could have been very popular with some in the crowd that day. He took a stand against Rome. So the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews, Jesus? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Is that what the crowd wanted? Let's move on to my third beware. I want to talk to you about the manipulated mob. The manipulated mob. Verse 11 says, But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. You notice that part where it says the chief priest stirred up the crowd? Okay, there's a beware here. Here, here it comes. Many can be stirred up by a few. Beware. When we find ourselves stirred up, we would do well to ask who it is that's holding the spoon. Is it a godly influence leading us to be more Christ-like? 
Is it a worldly influence leading us to compromise? Is it a satanic influence leading us to darkness? What if we prayed like this? Father, give us discernment to know which voices are stirring us up. Far and above any earthly voice, may we be stirred by your Holy Spirit as we spend time in your word, which he has inspired. If we have positions of influence over others, help us to use that influence for you. That was our hearts. The fourth and final beware, I want to look at pragmatic pilot. You all know what pragmatic means, right? A close synonym might be utilitarian and justifies the means. Whatever path of least resistance works without making too many ripples, that kind of mindset. Why do I call them that? Well, go with me. Verse 15 in Mark. Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. He did it to satisfy the crowd. Now, as we go through the Gospels, we see evidence against Pilate. As has been said by many, it wasn't only Jesus on trial before Pilate here. Pilate was on trial before Jesus. And we're about to see some of the points the prosecution would bring against Pilate. Did you know that throughout the course of the trial, Pilate had stated openly that Jesus was innocent? At least three times he had said that. Number one, early on, right after he meets him, before he sends him to Herod, Luke 23, 4, Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. After Herod, Luke 23, 14, after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Third one, after the cries for Barabbas, Luke 23, 21, but they kept shouting, crucify him. Verse 22, a third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted after declaring him innocent at least three times. A couple other strikes against Pilate. Do you know his wife had received a dream about all this? As with most of us husbands, he could have learned to listen to his wife more. Matthew 27, 19 says, While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, 
have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Also against him, after declaring him innocent at least three times, he ordered him punished, scourged, as Mark says. John 19 explains it as such. John 19.1, Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And this is going to overlap with Bill's passage next week because of Mark's sequence, but Verse 2 goes on to say, The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. But Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. I believe, along with many scholars, that this was an attempt by Pilate to say, I punished him, now let him go. A way out. But in order to examine Pilate's heart deeply, we need to understand what all is involved in this scourging. We just read the word scourged, and John's readers, Mark's readers, would have known full well what that meant. You and I may need some help to understand what a Roman scourging involved of a man declared innocent. Ironically, an author in Arizona Medicine in 1965, C. Truman Davis, wrote an article called The Crucifixion of Jesus, the Passion of Christ from a Medical Point of View. And he talked about scourgings. Many of you know about the flagellum. Two Roman soldiers would hold these leather whips that had bits of, of bone or metal or glass embedded in the leather. Listen to how C. Truman D Davis describes this. The heavy whip is brought down with full force again and again across Jesus' shoulders, back, and legs. At first, the heavy thongs cut through the skin only. And as the blows continue, they cut deeper into the subcutaneous tissues, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin, and finally spurting arterial bleeding from vessels in the underlying muscles. Finally, the skin of the back is hanging in long ribbons. And the entire area is an unrecognizable Massive, torn, bleeding tissue. After this, John 19.6 says, When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And then, of course, the, the famous passage Matthew 27, 24, when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water, washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. John 19, 16 so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Why? 
Why would Pilate do this after declaring him innocent? Why would he have him scourged? Why would he hand him over to be crucified? Pilate was a torn man. He was a torn man. And one author I read gave us a good warning. It's not as though Pilate is some kind of unusual monster. All of us are capable of the same kind of pragmatic reasoning if we're not careful. He's a torn man. On the one hand, he, he did not want to do any favors for the Jews. So there's part of him that would love to set Jesus free just to spite the chief priests. You read the history between him and the Jews, Luke 13, 1 and 2, other things with Caiaphas and events. They were not good friends. He would have loved to, to spite the, the chief priests here by letting him go. Okay. In addition to the fact they knew he was innocent, he heard his wife's dream, all of that, but he was a torn man. His job was to keep peace in Jerusalem. He knew that if he didn't, word could go back to Tiberius Caesar and his position could be recalled or worse, he could possibly lose his head because of ruling that was not effective. He's a torn man. So I think about that. And here's the beware for us. Beware of making pragmatism an idol in your life. Good intentions are not enough. He had some good intentions in here, right? But if we are always committed to taking the path of least resistance we become capable of horrific acts of evil in the name of convenience, either by direct action or neglect of said action. There's a legend, and it's only that, I'm not claiming this is true, that Pilate was beheaded later on by one of the emperors, and his head was placed in Mount Pilatus in Switzerland. Nearby, there's a lake, Lake Lucerne. And the legend goes on to say that if you're there at night, you can still hear Pilate trying to wash the blood off of his hands in that lake. I'm not here proclaiming I believe that legend is true, but I believe there's a truth behind that legend. Can you imagine if this man had any part of a conscience, the regret after this moment. Those nights when he woke up at three or four in the morning and thought about what he did on this day to an innocent man. I don't know about you, but I don't want to live a life filled with that kind of regret. Was it always wrong to take the path of least resistance? No. I'd say there are some times in life where that's the wise thing to do. But when it becomes an idol that keeps us from doing what is right, we've got a problem. Because guess what? Sometimes God calls us to do things in faith that are hard. If we always choose the path of least resistance, the pragmatic path, we too will resist his will at times. I think about a situation in this church 
Recently, we became of a, aware of a, a family that needed a vehicle. Theirs was shot. They had just finished paying it off, and it was broke down, engine and all. We prayed about it. Prayed about it on Wednesday night. The next day, I got a call from someone else in the church who had heard about the need and said, Hey, uh, I don't know how you feel about this, but we heard about that need, and we went out and uh, bought a vehicle. Could you help get it to the family that needs it without them knowing it was us? I'm like, gee, let me think about this. <laughs> yes, I told him, this is like the early church in the book of Acts, man. This is awesome. So they brought the car over, and, and Friday night, I got to be there as that family picked it up. What a blessing for them. What a blessing for the folks that got it. What a blessing for our church to see God at work. But I think about the, the folks that felt led to do that from God. They're human like the rest of us. I imagine if, if they're like me, you know, they get that leading from God, and all of a sudden, what? You start to see 10 other ways you could spend that money for your family, right? But what about this? What about that? What about that? What about that? And how easy it would have been to be pragmatic and say, well, I'm just being a little rash there. I'm sure God will take care of it another way. Pragmatism was not their path. God called. They did it. And what a blessing. It was. Skillet, uh, one of my favorite Christian rock bands, has a new song out called Surviving the Game. And at the beginning of the song, the lead singer states, he says, to be more than a conqueror, you have to learn to enjoy the pain. Now, I've got to admit, as someone who takes theology seriously, I'm not sure enjoys exactly the right word. I don't see that in here. But as you listen to the whole song, I get where they're coming from. Expect the pain, endure through the pain. Oh, yeah, that's biblical because God often calls his children to hard steps in faith in this life that can and will involve pain and sacrifice. What if we prayed like this in our hearts? Father, we confess we have sometimes made ease of life an idol. Help us commit to right, regardless of the cost. Help us stop neglecting your call in the name of comfort. Those were the bewares. After those four, I'm sure you're ready like me to get to the behold. This is my favorite part here. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As we look at our Savior on trial, his life on the line, I want us to look for a moment at our consecrated king. What's consecrated mean? He is totally set apart, sold out, devoted to his father's will, his father's kingdom, his father's purpose. And he walks through this dark trial confident, conquering, and composed exactly because he is consecrated to his father. We read a bit of Pilate's interaction with him in Mark. John goes more in depth. John 18.33, if you have your Bibles. Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, 
do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? The cry of the world, right? John 19, 6, Pilate said to them again, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law. According to that law, he ought to die, because he's made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? All the pride of a Roman governor. Look at the composure of our consecrated king. He looks at him, answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Consecration to God. Our Savior was set apart for his will and his kingdom and his purpose to bring salvation, to make it available for you and I. This is what Paul called the good confession. As Paul writes young Timothy, he's encouraging him to stay faithful in his ministry, right? 1 Timothy 6, 13, he says to young Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. What's the good confession? Standing in the face of a powerful Roman governor and speaking the truth of who he was and why he came. And I think about the things he said to Pilate, and I want to share a couple things. If by the Spirit we follow Jesus and live a consecrated life set apart to God and his kingdom and his will, guess what? We'll believe and hold on to a couple things that will keep us calm and confident in the middle of trials that come in this world. Number one, though we walk in a fallen world, we are citizens of a kingdom that is not of this world. What does that mean? We do not have to ride the same roller coaster everybody else does. We don't have to take the temporary highs in this world too seriously. We don't have to take the temporary lows in this world in a way that crushes us. Because at the end of the day, we are citizens of the kingdom of God. Does that mean we don't experience emotions? I'm not saying that. I'm saying we can have peace and trust and faith in our Lord of that kingdom. Number two, in the midst of this world's lies, we listen to the voice of Jesus, who is the truth. Is that who we're listening to? I hope so. Finally, in a world of fallen rulers, we worship the only 
sovereign God who rules over all. That's who we worship. Those things characterize our lives. It will give us peace in the middle of life's storms. I, I got an example of that right now. I'd ask you to pray for it too. On Wednesday, my dad is having open heart surgery in Ohio. He's having a valve replaced. My brother and I are flying out on Tuesday and coming back on Thursday, but pray for him and my mom, if you would. I'll tell you, I talked to my mom two days ago, and over the phone she said, we have peace in the middle of this. When I talked to my dad about it, he prayed a couple things because he's tired. He said, well, one thing I pray is that I come out of this stronger and faster, but the other thing he told me, he said, I know who's got me. (laughs) I know who's got me. That God's provision is so mysterious. There's a woman here this morning who hasn't been here in ages. She came in and we were catching up and I was telling her about my dad's heart valve replacement. And she went on to tell me that she had not too long ago had three valves replaced in her heart in an open heart surgery. And she told me about the the spiritual battle as she went into surgery. She said she could feel the darkness of the enemy. But in the middle of that, it was though God picked her up and and lifted her up and and gave her peace and and carried her through. And I looked at her and I said, uh, I would say, what are the chances of you being here to tell me that after all this time? But I'm going to say the chances are 100%. (laughs) Because the Lord knew I needed that encouragement. Pass that on to my dad, too. Thank you. If we prayed like this, Lord, help us to cling to Jesus, our King, in faith. We know salvation is only found in him. Help us to follow him in consecration to you in the power of the Holy Spirit. May you give us supernatural peace and clarity as we hold on to the truth of your kingdom and your truth and your sovereignty. Behold the Lamb of God. Here's the final one. Be grateful. Be grateful, believers. For this, we're going to look at who I'm going to call Blessed Barabbas. (laughs) Blessed Barabbas. What a day that was for old Barabbas, huh? Verse 6. Let's review. At the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. Fast forward. Do you want me to... Least for you the king of the Jews, for he perceived it was out of envy. But is that what happened? Nope. Verse 15, Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. Barabbas. Now, we read earlier that he was guilty of murder and insurrection. Okay, those could almost be noble in the Jewish mind against Rome, right? But John 18.40 adds another note. Because now Barabbas was a robber. He was a robber, not quite so, so noble. He was a sinner who was about to get what he likely deserved from the Roman government, a cross. But believer, I want you to consider something for a moment, that we have something in common with Barabbas. We too deserve death. Eternal death because of our transgressions. Instead, we have been set free because Jesus took our place. On the cross. How do we become right before God? I think about this and look, we can't do it on our own. Our righteous deeds are like filthy rags, right? Can we walk 
his path on our own? Nope. I think about yesterday on that 5K. We had our four-year-old Luke with us. Guess what happened after about 1K? <laughs> Daddy, can you carry me? I got a workout yesterday. He needed me to carry him. We can't become righteous on our own. So where do we turn? Where do we turn if you think of the cry of the Jews when they said, His blood be upon us and our children. And if we're honest, we realize it's not just them. His blood is upon all of us because He went to the cross for your sin and mine. Where do we turn for, for righteousness? Well, I think about what Peter would preach on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. He was preaching about this Savior after he was risen. Acts 2.36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. How did that hit home? Verse 37 says, When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And maybe some of us are this morning when we realize that was my sin and yours that put him there too. They were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There were added that day about 3,000 souls who stepped out of darkness and into light. I think about what was later said in Acts 4.11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And you know what? Amen. Yeah, and when we turn to him in faith... As our Savior and as our Lord, His blood upon us takes on a whole new meaning. It takes on a whole new meaning. You think about what Paul said in Ephesians 1. In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us. And listen, as I go on to two more, I want you to imagine Barabbas running out that day. I'm free. I'm free. And to realize if you believed in Jesus Christ, you ought to have that same thought in your heart today because of his blood. Ephesians 2.13, now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And finally, Peter himself in 1 Peter 2.24 he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. Amen. Have you come to Jesus? Father, thank you for this passage and for each of the gospels. Wow, do you go in depth as to what happened that day and there's so much in there. Thank you that you're a God who so graciously communicates to us through your word. Lord, I pray that you protect us from the things we were warned about today. Protect us from envy that, that blinds us and, and pragmatism that, that leads us to evil. Help us to set our eyes firmly on the Lamb of God, to behold him, 
that we might be like Barabbas, set free. And if we've been set free, help us be encouraged in that reality today. Maybe to take a, a passage like Ephesians 1 and start taking those little phrases of what it means to be in Christ and, and really hold on to them. Hold them to be true and walk in that reality. Jesus, I thank you that you are our consecrated king. I thank you that our kingdom, your kingdom is not of this world, excuse me, and that we're citizens of that kingdom. Thank you in a world of confusion and lies, you are the truth. Father, give us strength through the spirit as believers to walk with him. And I pray that your spirit would draw anyone who has not yet come to the Savior, to the cross. God so loved the world, gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Thank you, Lord. And I pray that even as we take our offering this morning, it would be out of thankful hearts crying, I'm free, I'm free because of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.